This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. This is David Kunzman, and I'll be your host for today. And today we'll be talking with David Baumeister on his newest book, published 2022 by Northwestern University, entitled Kant on the Human Animal, Anthropology, Ethics, and Race. David is currently based in Stuttgart, Germany. I hope you enjoy the interview. So we usually like to start our interviews by asking our guests just their uh just their background, their general background, and uh, how did they come to write their current work? Great. Um, yeah, so hello. I'm My name is David Baumeister. I'm a philosopher. I'm currently based in Germany, but I did my training and um, have done most of my teaching in the United States. Um, I've been passionate about philosophy and the, the history of philosophy in particular since I was uh, in my teenage years when I first started reading philosophy in high school and I took a community college course that really sparked my interest. Um, and so really the, um, the story of my life has been um, my passion for philosophy. And that has ultimately led to this book, which is my first and I hope not my last. Um, so yeah, really my, uh, this longstanding interest has led me to investigate this question. Um, and I can speak more certainly to the specific questions that emerged for me and that I see the book as responding to. So I guess for people that are not well-versed in Kant, the subject of this book. Could you just give a brief overview of Kant and I guess his place in the history of uh, European philosophy and philosophy as a whole? Sure. Yeah. So um, Immanuel Kant, he's a household name in German-speaking countries, but he's probably a little bit less known in the United States. Um, He's kind of almost like a Shakespeare of philosophy. And so far as he, he, so he, he lived and worked in the age of enlightenment, the late 18th century. But I, I think of him as a Shakespeare-like figure insofar as he was so influential on philosophy that basically all of Western philosophy after Kant had to come to grips with Kant. Um, there's really, you can think about the history of philosophy as before and, and after Kant, um, which isn't to say that everything he he wrote about and his ideas were, were correct um, by no means. You know, there's a lot of dispute and uh, debate that followed his ideas, um, but he's, he had an enormous influence on the history, in particular in areas of uh, metaphysics and uh, epistemology, theories of knowledge, what is it that, uh, how we humans know and access the world, and then in ethics, um, what is the right thing to do, how we should govern ourselves and organize our societies. Um, but Kant also, as I explore in this book, 
um, was enormously influential in the foundation of the disciplines of anthropology, um, studies of human nature, even uh, medicine. He he wrote very widely, um, and that's one of the great and interesting things about reading and studying him is just how um, wide his own interests were and how he was able to connect everything into you know, what he thought was an integrated and functioning system of thought. So in the beginning of the book, you tell, you tell an interesting story about uh, how maybe Kant came to view animals in lieu of his father's occupation. Could you, uh, I guess, uh, expand upon that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Kant is an interesting figure insofar as his his own biographical life was actually quite boring. And, and so biographies of Kant, if they just focus on, you know, his life, when he lived, what he did, who he met, um, that's, there's, uh, it's pretty, that'd be a pretty slim volume. He grew up in the city of Königsberg, which at that time was part of Prussia. So of course this is an, um, he was born in 18 or 1724. That was before the state of Germany was, uh, created. But Königsberg was a city in, in Prussia. He was from a you know a German speaking family. They were had a Pietist background. Königsberg now is the city of Kaliningrad. It's in that uh, r- enclave of Russia. Um, it's kind of just north of Poland. So the history of that city has had its own long legacy. Kant grew up there, and he was the son of a saddle maker um, by trade, um, and so he had a through through his um, the saddle making profession of his fa- father who made saddles harnesses um, he had a lot of direct exposure to animals in particular to horses um, to cows to oxen um, and so I speculate in the the start of the book that if you want to focus on Kant's interest in in animality and and in non-human animals and ultimately the human animal it is worth noting that his childhood he had a lot of direct experience with these animals Um Kind of these sort of psychobiographical claims aren't very common in, in philosophy, and most focus on Kant really just looks at his his thought, what he wrote. Um, but I do think that that's an important point here, and is interesting for the the context. So I guess starting with Kant's uh, view of animality and animals, uh, how does his view different from earlier Enlightenment thinkers like Locke and Hume and Descartes? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I, I suppose there are two points to be made. One is that, um, so Kant's view of non-human animals, so, and I'll use that from here for distinguish between human animals and non-human animals, because I think that's, that's really at the, the crux of what, I, what I'm investigating here. So first of all, his view of non-human animals is actually not that distinct from, say, Descartes. So Descartes, the uh, well-known 17th century um, early Enlightenment French philosopher, uh, notoriously f- for many, um, claimed that other animals, non-human animals, are basically just living machines. So like a clock that ticks, um, animals function instinctively. Um, they don't have free will. They're basically just repeating and going through the motions of life. And that idea, that mechanistic conception of, of non-human animals did survive into Kant's time. And, and for many, it's, it really survived into the 20th century until sort of more sophisticated forms of um, animal science and ecology emerged. Um, so on that score, it's you, there isn't much to distinguish Kant from his predecessors. He, of course, does have some um, 
influential remarks on the ethical obligations that humans do or do not have towards non-human animals. And this is something that he shares, say, with, uh, with, with Locke, um, that we don't have direct duties to other human beings um, or to other animals. We really just have direct ethical relationships and responsibilities towards humans. So when we're talking about the other animals, they're sort of off the moral radar. But the second point here is when we're talking about the animality of human beings, and for this German word Kant uses Tierheit, he really only uses it to describe human beings um, and to describe a certain dimension or aspect of, of human nature. And that's something I think that Kant is incredibly innovative around insofar as he was really the first Western philosopher to develop a full-blown account of what this human animality is, um, what it means for humans to be natural beings, how that sort of animal naturalness connects with other aspects of our natures, um, and to really do that in a thoroughgoing way. This connects with a bit with what I said earlier about Kant's role in the history of anthropology. He was one of the first to lecture on anthropology at a European university, and in studying and focusing on anthropology himself, he really had this question of what is the human being central in his sights. Um, and so it, when you look at it in, in those terms, not just say how we conceive of other animals, but how we conceive of ourselves as animals, as animal creatures in the system of nature, um, that's really uh, where Kant kind of, I think, was the first in a very important lineage. And that sets him apart from his predecessors. And these two different aspects of the human, uh, does this relate to, like in the first critique, the, the, the split between the phenomena and the noumena? Yes, absolutely. So in the, in the first critique, so um, Kant's most well-known uh, work, the first critique or the critique of pure reason, is focused on questions of, you know, basically how is it that subjects know the world around them or know objects in the world? Um, and part of their a crucial distinction is between phenomena and noumena. So phenomena being objects that appear to us, they're sensuous, they're material. You can touch them, see them, smell them. Um, basically what we think about as, as a sensuous object is phenomenal or is a phenomena. Noumenal objects or noumena are things that we can't see or sense, but Kant thinks they, they still exist. They have a, an intellectual or intelligible existence or reality. They're grasped by the mind, if you will, or um, through reason or the understanding or other faculties of the mind for Kant. Um, so the Phenomenal things are sensible, you can see them, and noumenal things are invisible beyond the behind the scenes. But interestingly, and this this is what Kant has say in common with you know a figure like Plato with his theory of the forms, um, these invisible noumenal entities are really more important. They're even though we can't see them, they're actually more foundational um, to you know, the, the actual nature of the world for Kant. So this distinction between, um, the, the key distinction I investigate in the book between animality and reason in human nature, Kant's view of this, this maps onto that distinction between phenomena and noumena. Animality is the phenomenal aspect of human nature. It's, this is the sen the aspect of ourselves that we can feel, sense, um, it really is tantamount to our sensuality, our embodiedness, if you will, as living beings. 
Whereas our reason is what connects us to the noumena realm. If we didn't have reason, there wouldn't be noumena for us to access. We couldn't think about noumena. Um, reason is itself, an, an, you know, in, in its pure form, pure reason is a noumenal entity into itself. You can't measure or weigh reason. If you, you know, di- if you dissect a human cadaver, there's no reason there in the brain. Um, there's only phenomenal things. Reason is this. Um, has this other unique status. And so you see that in the first critique, but you see it across Kant's thought, this distinction. Um, And that's part of what I investigate in the book is over three decades of his output, how does this distinction between animality and reason um, play out and how does it develop and where does it manifest and what's its importance? Another interesting interesting thing that you mentioned in your book, uh, I guess differently from um, someone like Descartes or Locke, you mentioned that Kant draws upon Aristotle and thinks of animals as ensouled beings. Uh, I guess my question is, why do you think he goes back to Descartes? I mean, go back, go, why do you think he goes back to Aristotle? Uh, and what do you think that does to I guess rethink the animal in the Enlightenment age. Yeah, that's a that's a great point and an, and an interesting one. Um, so I'm, I said before that you can situate Kant in this mechanistic legacy that comes from Descartes, and on the one hand, that is true. Um, you know, Kant wanted to philosophically ground the natural sciences. He was a Newtonian insofar as he thought that there were laws of nature that absolutely govern how natural entities and objects interact with one another. Um, And ultimately his view of the natural world is mechanistic insofar as he thinks it's predictable. It can be known that there is cause and effect in operation. Absolutely. Um, But at the same time, so this is, um, and this isn't just unique to Kant, but really you see this in the late 18th century, especially in the the German tradition, but um, in other uh, European philosophical uh, areas too, the emergence of what scholars today call organicism or um, kind of a new biologism. And the idea there is to say that, well, the world as a whole may be mechanistic, but living beings... So plants, non-human animals, uh, bacteria, uh, things that are alive seem to have a slightly different status than just, say, immaterial objects or uh, unliving objects. So like stones and squirrels, um, they're both parts of nature, but they seem to function a bit differently. So we, even if we can still be Newtonian, we still want to study the laws of nature and think it, that you, know, you can know nature, um, we nonetheless want to carve out a different space for living beings that's distinct. Um, And to say that, what does it mean to be alive? There's other principles or um, um, dimensions of nature at work there. So that's one sense in which, you know, in in the first chapter of the work, I do connect Kant with Aristotle, this notion of the insolidness of animals. What does it mean to be alive? For uh, Aristotle, soul or suke is um, what makes any living thing what it is. Um, when some when a living thing dies, it no longer has soul. Soul is understood by Aristotle in, a, in very naturalistic terms. Um, you know, it's we humans are alive insofar as we're, we're breathing, we're ensouled. But when we die and our bodies become, again, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, to dust become material um, that kind of 
dissolves back into the earth, that soul is is gone. Um, so soul is, uh, for Aristotle, as for Kant, uh, a naturalistic concept. And that actually distinguishes Kant from Descartes, for whom soul is what we would say more a noumenal aspect, um, purely noumenal. Uh, for Descartes, the soul is what grounds free will. It's placed in human beings by God. Um, it has a sort of an immortality. Um, Kant's relationship to the question of the immortality of the human soul is a, is a complicated one. But when it comes to thinking about non-humans and their souls, um, there's ample evidence in, in Kant's work that he was uh, more Aristotelian in his thinking than, say, Cartesian. Um, and the, the broader context there is, yes, to say that um, there's this organicist, vitalist strand in his thought from early to late, um, which is also just trying to attend to living beings um, in a unique way. And also, so I mentioned anthropology, Kant also contributed to the life sciences so um, in, in unique ways and was actively reading these late 18th century biologists. We'd now call them biologists, but at the time, you know, they're, they're focused on life, which is, again, just to say that living things seem to have a unique status. And this is a little bit out of the purview of the book, but do you think uh, this view of life that Kant propounded has any influence later on in Romanticism and Lieben's philosophy? Yes, um, I do. So one of Kant's, so Kant wrote these three critical works, the critique of pure reason, the critique of pure practical reason, and then the critique of judgment. And it's that third critique that often gets a lot of attention from scholars who are interested in Kant's influence upon romanticism, um, later um, philosophies of art and aesthetics, and also the philosophy of biology. Um, because one of the central concerns of Kant in that book is with the question of what is nature and what is it to think about humans um, in the scheme of nature. Kant there introduces or reintroduces into Western philosophy a, a unique notion of teleology, which is just the sense of trying to understand entities as goal-oriented rather than um, purely caused from antecedent forces. Um, and this goal-orientedness, this teleological dimension of nature, um, Kant really propounds there. And um, in, in short, what Kant does in that book is connects aesthetics with this natural teleology. So for things to be beautiful, for we humans to find things beautiful, or to be impressed by sublimely powerful natural forces, say like waterfalls or natural disasters, um, those aesthetic forces and impacts upon human beings need to be understood for Kant in the context of nature um, as a sort of, you know, so he, he really grounds aesthetics in, in nature and in a sort of naturalism that is, I'd, I'd say, proto-romantic. And so then zoom forward a, a generation or two in the, let's say, within German romanticism, but more kind of global romantic movements, that, that focus on um, naturalness and um, the importance of thinking, certainly beauty and poetics, but you know broader questions of human meaning in uh, relationship to nature and seeing humans as themselves natural beings. Um, I think Kant contributes to that, and that's one of his um, larger spheres of influence. You mentioned anthropology earlier, um, and you mentioned that 
Khan gave a few lectures on anthropology. Um, I guess my question is, what is what is his evolution between the lectures of anthropology? How how did he change his views? Sure. Yeah, well, anthropology was actually one of the subjects that Kant lectured on most. So his his first anthropology lecture course was in 1772, and his last, I believe, was in 1796. And so, um, spanning a you know a, about 25 years, um, and when Kant started lecturing on anthropology, this was notably before his the appearance of the first critique, and while he was just sort of developing the initial ideas that would go into his most well-known philosophy. So his, you know, the first critique is published in 1781. So in the decade prior to that, um, Kant scholars call this Kant's silent decade because he published very little. Um, the ideas that he's really germinating on these ideas that would then go into the first critique. But all the while, he's he's lecturing on a number of subjects, but um, on anthropology and his that 1771-72 anthropology lecture course is really the the first in the German-speaking world to to do that. Um, uh, so just to say, um, you know, or to see anthropology as an academic discipline in its own right. Anthropology has its own longer history, the study of human beings and you know v- various contexts. But um, one way you can think about what's new about Kant's approach is that. Um, well, well, it's it's naturalistic. He's not conceiving of human beings based on how they're presented, say, in, in religious traditions um, or in um, kind of ancient scholarly traditions coming out of Aristotle or Galen. He wants to establish a new scientific approach to human beings, um, a scientific and philosophical approach to, to human beings, to what it means to be a human um, what characterizes the human in relation to other beings. Now, if we zoom ahead and want to consider the evolution of Kant's anthropology, a, a lot can be said there. Um, but maybe the most important point is just to say that anthropology, Kant's interest in anthropology survives and continues throughout his critical period, um, while he's also introducing you know, his revolutionary thinking on, uh, in, in metaphysics, his mature moral philosophy. All of that's developing while he's also lecturing in anthropology and publishing smaller works in anthropology. His uh, one of his last published books, this came out in 1798, and it was one of the last two books that he himself uh, oversaw to publication, is called The Anthropology from a Pragmatic Point of View. And that book is very important. I discuss it a lot in in my book. Um, it's important for Kant insofar as that was his attempt to take his, his decades of lecturing on anthropology and really coalesce and condense and um, make it consistent in a single work. Um, so he saw himself as successfully doing that in that book, um, and also to put put anthropology in relationship to these other domains of his thinking. Um, you know, what does it mean to, what is the importance of anthropology for ethics? Um, what is its importance for um, for metaphysics or for the philosophy of religion? Um, so he, by the end of his career, he thought that he was able to kind of set all these in the right order. Um, and the last thing I, I suppose I could say about anthropology there is that Kant um, proposed that there were four key questions of philosophy. What can I know? What should I do? For what can I hope? And finally, what is the human being? And that fourth question is proper to anthropology. And so Kant ultimately understood that anthropology is, interestingly, um, a branch of philosophy. So 
con- I think it's right to understand him as a philosophical anthropologist, and um, his contributions in anthropology are philosophically um, inundated with philosophical ideas. Um, and the converse of that would be to say that, um, and there's a number of current Kant scholars who, who make this sort of claim, is that the anthropology in, in Kant's work there is not just secondary, it's not just happening in the background um, alongside his other philosophical works, but it actually has important contributions to make to his thought all along. And so Kant's philosophy as a whole is infused with anthropological perspectives and ideas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So getting into the more, I guess, controversial half of the book, what I, I guess my question is, what is the connection between how homo phenomenon or the, or the animality side of the human and Kant's conception of race? Sure. Yeah, so um, in being one of the innovators in the discipline of anthropology, um, Kant was also one of the inventors of the modern concept of of race. And so a number of scholars have established that and thinking about, well, you know, over the past centuries, when did our current conceptions of race and of different human races emerge? Um, And Kant is a very important person or figure in that history. One thing that could be said is um, in any Western language, Kant was the first to use the term race. So the German term is Rassen. Um, to use that in application to human beings and to systematically think that prior, um, the, the term race had been used, as it still sometimes is, to say refer to different breeds of dogs, Hunderassen or, or dog races. Um, but Kant really put forth this notion that there are different human races um, and that we can try to conceive of them and differentiate them. Now, that in and of itself is is one of his legacies when it comes to race is just it, kind of putting forth this new domain of study um also notoriously you know kant like many others in his time but i think you know uniquely and systematically establishes a hierarchy of races so for kant there are four basal races um the the white race the black race um the yellow race and then the red race um they're uh, and races are identified with skin color, this identifiable and uh, inheritable uh, phenotypical characteristic. Uh, Kant thinks that that's what defines race, is if basically children inherit characteristics from their parents, and that is done over an entire population, then you have a race. Um, so Kant establishes these four basal human races, um, and really in, on a number of levels in different ways, um, establishes or asserts that the, the white race is superior. Um, and so the last chapter of my book connects his this distinction between animality and reason to Kant's contribution in, um, in raciology or his contributions in the theory of race. And I argue that um, the concept of animality in particular 
um, does explain a lot and it does play a, a larger role than has previously been recognized in his race theory in its formation, um, but also just in its sustained development over time. I, I guess my next question is, um, are there any, um, were there any, con- um, I guess, figures after the fact that critiqued Kant in this, on his, on his view of race? Yes. So more recently, I mean, uh, just focus on Kant's race theory has really only been uh, a topic of of scholarly conversation in the last two two or three decades. Um, so, and part of that is is just focus in academic circles and more popularly in, on the history of race um, that was understudied in, until recently. Um, race was often just seen as a a historical um, thing that maybe didn't necessarily have its own history of formation, but of course it does. Um, you know, the race and racial categories were invented and Kant played a, a, a important role in that formation. So nowadays, if you look at scholarly debates or even in, in the public press, I mean, sometimes Kant and his contributions here do make it into, um, non-academic discussions. Kant is usually criticized, um, for this this hierarchical notion of uh, of of races, um, and j- just for the sort of stereotypically negative things he has to say about the non-white races, in particular about the black race, um, but I think the picture there is a little bit more nuanced, um, and that there, are, there at least just to say that um, there are debates about the full extent of the permeation in Kant's philosophy of his racist ideas. So, you know, you can ask, was Kant a racist? Um, Importantly, is Kant's, say, metaphysics, is that tinged by his racism? Um, Is his ethics, and um, ethics is, I think, probably the area where Kant's philosophy looms largest, Um, his concept of, you know, the the human being and of um, the respect and moral obligations that we hold towards human beings by virtue of their humanity. Um, that's a real foundational idea that, say, made its way into the um, United Nations Charter on Universal Human Rights. Kant's a very important figure in the history of ethics. Um, so if you take that legacy and you put it alongside his legacy um, when it comes to contributing to the, the history of race and this kind of very racist approach, um, you have to ask how those things sit alongside one another. Um, so Kant definitely has his critics today. I don't think Kant really doesn't have any defenders when it comes to race today, but there are defenders of Kant's philosophy as a whole who make the claim that, um, you know, that, that his racist ideas don't permeate these other aspects of his work. Um, I'll just conclude on that note by saying that my position with regards to that, I'm a bit agnostic as insofar as whether his racism tinges other aspects of his work. Um, but I do think that at the very least, this question, any, any aspect of his work that has to do with concrete human beings, with natural human beings, um, with human animals, um, is going to be thought of in these racialized terms. And um, the, I guess the unique contribution that my research has made around this aspect of Kant's work is to say that... Um, that the animality plays a role in his hierarchy of races, and specifically to say that for Kant, um, you can evidence the claim that 
his position is that white races have a stronger predisposition towards reason and a weaker predisposition towards animality, whereas non-white races, and in particular Black and Indigenous American races, are more strongly determined by their animality and less by their reason. So it's not that Kant thinks that any race is purely animal or purely rational, but there's this spectrum. um, And animality, and his theory of animality, plays an important role in establishing and characterizing that spectrum. I guess my next question is, uh, how is Kant's view of how is Kant's view of animality, how is that influenced, I guess, later generations of philosophers of biology and life sciences? Has it been entirely, has it been entirely supplanted or is there still influence? Sure. Yeah. So on this score, this is actually, so around ideas of animality and of human animality, um, Kant's influence has been very little. And actually this dimension of his work has 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 not been studied um, and has, I think, really had little direct strong influence upon Kant's successors. And there are important reasons for that. Um, one is that, so um, Kant's largest impact uh, uh, and kind of legacy in the tradition of philosophy and across, say, the life sciences, um, across, let, let's say, the domains of human knowledge as such, are, like I said before, his contributions to metaphysics and epistemology, his ethics, um, his aesthetics. Um, those are sort of like the well-known peaks of, of his work. Um, Kant didn't write a single sustained essay or a book on animality. Um, Kant himself um, didn't really afford animality much importance in his thought. Um, it's not that he said that, you know, this is like a central philosophical concept that is key to my thinking. Um, my reading is, you know, more about trying to recover this aspect of Kant's work to show that, in fact, this does permeate his thinking. In fact, um, he's far more innovative on this score than others have recognized. Kant was, you know, just like with race, how he innovated that terminological use. Um, Kant was the first author in German, um, I contend, to use the term tier height um, uh, or animality that just doesn't appear before Kant. He really invented this idea. Um, And then also to say uh, another kind of reason why this maybe has been supplanted is that in the history of anthropology, the sort of pragmatic anthropology that Kant was developing in the late 18th century, really just a few decades later in Germany and elsewhere gets replaced or um, kind of passed over by more purely biological or physical forms of anthropology. Um, So in the early 19th century, the key proponents of that in Germany include um, uh, Blumenbach, um, who, you know, he, he was focusing on skeletal analysis, focusing on physical and physiological characteristics. And when we think about anthropology today, you know, so including primatology, but the study of human beings by, you know, the, the various physical characteristics that they have, um, that's really what dominated 19th and early 20th century anthropology. Kant is closer to what we today call cultural anthropology. He has a um, while he's, you know, he's not, um, he doesn't neglect physio- physiological or physical aspects of the human being. Those are very important. Um, he's interested in what humans are doing, what their capabilities for action are and are not. Um, and so I think even though 
you know, Kant's anthropology as a whole, and then his concept of animality more narrowly, those really were not as influential as other aspects of his work um, for complicated reasons. I think if you zoom forward to today, we have a lot to learn by focusing on them. Um, and one thing I'll, I'll say there, in, in my book, I think today, even though Kant's concept of anthropology had little um, direct influence and wasn't focused on by scholars, I think looking at that has enormous lessons for us as human beings in, in confronting environmental crises and the um, climate crisis, notions of um, extinction, the kind of present moment that we're in where we have to consider our place on the planet as animal beings, not just as rational beings. Um, looking at how Kant grappled with that issue, I think has a lot to tell us. Another speculative question, what do you think Kant would say do you think he would change his or expand his views on rationality in lieu of certain animal studies that have been going on maybe in the past decade or two? That's a great question. I think, yeah, so I would speculate that that Kant would at least be open to expanding his notion of, of reason or of rationality beyond human beings to um, include other non-human animals, say perhaps elephants, dolphins, um, great apes, perhaps parrots, depends on how you're defining reason. If it's just a matter of kind of brute intelligence, is it a matter of self-awareness? Um, for Kant, reason and self-awareness really go hand in hand, the ability to call oneself an I, um, to be a subject. Um, and I think that in Kant's time, you know, animal science and, and zoology was much more narrow and um, kind of reductive than it than it is today. And you're absolutely right that in the last uh, few decades, um, so much research has demonstrated that other animals have far more sophisticated um, mental and behavioral lives than previous models would would allow us to to grasp. Um, so I and I'll also point out that for Kant. Um, Kant himself, another thing that he was kind of unique in is proposing the existence of extraterrestrials. So Kant was pretty convinced in a number of works that there were other beings, say on Mars or on Venus, these other planets. And Kant is willing to allow that they very well may be rational. That is to say, you know, kind of like humans on planet Earth, there may be rational Martians. And um, if they are rational, then they should have full moral status. They can be knowers, kind of full-blown subjects. To be rational for Kant is, you know, that's kind of the epitome of, of what it means to, to, to be a being. Um, so there, that's an example of where Kant allows reason to be applied outside of human beings. So it's at least plausible that Kant would be open to applying that to, to non-humans. And I'll add just that there are scholars who today and uh, philosophers who draw upon Kant's work, such as Christine Korsgaard um, at, at Harvard, um, whose approach is very much that, that recent empirical um, animal science and studies have demonstrated to us that we should be much more open to um, considering the full moral status and the, the intelligence, the, the value of non-human animals than Kant himself was. So um, if you are influenced by the present day, you can kind of take Kant and go beyond himself. And so if, if he were living today, I think that he would be very sympathetic to those ways of developing his fundamental ideas. So I think that's all the time we have for today. But before we go, we, we usually like to ask our guest, is there any current work that they're working on? 
Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, I'm, I'm working on several things. So uh, my work as a philosopher is not just, um, I'm not just a Kant scholar, although that's, that's a centerpiece of it. I'm um, interested, I consider myself an environmental philosopher more, more broadly. And so I have several projects in conservation ethics, um, investigating indigenous um, American views of, of, of nature and the human nation, nature relationship. Um, and, but I do have more work in Kant, and so the next book project that I'm developing is a Kantian approach to environmental philosophical issues more widely. So in some ways, that would build upon the scholarly analysis of his view of human animality presented in this book, but would widen that, that out to consider, well, given what Kant had to say about humans as natural beings, what does that allow us then to say about how we should position ourselves, say, in the climate crisis? Um, what obligations do we or do we not have to, to non-human animals? Um, how should we be thinking of ourselves, you know, uh, on an overpopulated um, planet with limited resources um, to kind of marshal Kantian resources and use his philosophy to speak to these environmental issues? Um, that's the, the work I'm doing. And also just to say it, what I, I see as distinctive of my approach in, in that new book, as in this previous one, is that um, I don't at all take the position that Kant is correct about all of this. Um, some scholars, you know, basically are apologists for Kant and put him forth as Kant's right. We should be just rephrasing his overall correct views. Um, I don't take that position. I, I take a more nuanced view that you know Kant may have been right about certain things and wrong about others, but what's very important and what we can learn from is just how how much he wrote about in this very important critical time. So, like Shakespeare, um, he just was working at a very crucial juncture, and there's so many inspiring, interesting, fascinating, also deeply problematic aspects of his thought that are worth attending to on any number of levels. So I intend to take that in an environmental direction next. David, thank you so much for the interview. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for the invite.